You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Kind of privilege and, and sort of uh, abundance they're about to enjoy. God had led them out of bondage and oppression in Egypt, and then God provided for them in the wilderness, and now on the edge of the promised land, just before our text, we see that God is going to bring them into a good land that is filled with water, fresh water. It's filled with grains and fruits, olives and honey. In this land, they will lack nothing. They will eat and they will be full. And so Moses is about to warn them that in their abundance— In this abundant land, they might end up neglecting God, forgetting the one who rescued them and gave them this abundant land. And so when it comes to stewardship in our modern land of abundance, this is a great text for us to study. We are surrounded by abundance. We daily have an opportunity to consume and in our consumption to forget about the God who provides. The basic premise of Deuteronomy 8 is fairly simple. We will see that remembering God, the one who provides, is the beginning of stewardship. And from that basic premise, we will then extract a wealth of wisdom from our passage about stewardship. And so let's read from Deuteronomy 8. If you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word, I'll read and you can follow along. Beginning in verse 11, I'll read through verse 20. God's word says this, "'Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God.'" By not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power And the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that you may confirm, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Go and grab a seat, and I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us, your people. And here and now, we're asking for your help. God, we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will last forever. And so help us, by your Spirit, would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things found here in your Word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In 2014, John Cortinez and Greg Bomber went to the campus of Harvard 
to get an MBA at Harvard Business School, and they would never be the same. Both of them came to campus with a vision of making a lot of money, and their MBA was the next step on the path to making all the money they thought they would accumulate. But through a project that they actually worked on together throughout their studies, God changed their vision of wealth and of stewardship. Their project became a published book in 2016 by the title God and Money, How We Discovered True Riches at Harvard Business School. I learned about their story through a podcast episode of The Bible Project, and one of the things that stuck out to me in listening to their story was that they were both Christian men, they were both part of local churches, they were both tithing 10% of their income, but completely ignorant of what God had to say about money. I mentioned last week that over the last 50 years or so, evangelical Christians have been given two basic rules for their money. One, give 10%. Two, don't go into debt. And as a result, Christians are then left wondering, well, what do I do with the other 90% of my money? Greg and John were like that. We have operated out of a mindset where we think of 10% of our money should be given to God and then acted like the other 90% is ours to do with it whatever we want. And in reality, that's kind of an idealized scenario because in reality, the average Christian in America gives about 2%. So with this paradigm, most Christians live in a world where they give, 10 per, or give 2%, feel guilty that they're not giving the other 8% of God's money to him, and ignorant about what to do with the rest of the 90%. But what if the entire paradigm is flawed? What if I told you that the Bible has an entirely different vision for our money? Here's what I'm going to argue today. Rather than think 10% is God's, and 90% is ours. I think the vision the scriptures give us, what God wants us to see is that all of it is his. That, that's going to be the basic premise of our sermon. Here's our definition of stewardship then as a result. Stewardship is the intentional use of God's money in a way that aligns with God's values. For John and Greg, during their time at Harvard, this was one of the key paradigm shifts for them. In the podcast, one of them shared that rather than ask how much they need to give away, they started to ask, how much do they actually need to keep? If it is all God's, then how much is required to provide for my basic needs, they started to ask. For high-income earners like John and Greg, one of the ways a biblical paradigm of stewardship will confront you is to change the orientation of your questions. Rather than limiting your giving, you will need to intentionally limit your consumption. There are some in this room who are in that category right now, high-income earners who are asking themselves what God wants them to do with the money that he has entrusted to them. For most people in this room, we are not high-income earners, but stewardship for us is no less important. Regardless of income, stewardship is a discipleship issue. Because how we use money is a worship issue at its core. The fundamental challenge to your stewardship is not knowing what rules to follow, but knowing what God you worship. So as we work through our passage and talk about stewardship, there are three aspects that I want us to see together, and they will form our outline. The first is the responsibilities of stewardship. Second, the dangers of stewardship. And third, the redemption of stewardship. 
So first, the responsibilities of stewardship. Moses is applying the paradigm of God's ownership and God's provision to the Israelites' stewardship here. And the first responsibility of stewardship is to see that God owns it all. In verses 1 through 10 of Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is explaining how abundant the land is going to be. So right before our passage, he's saying, you're coming into a land that is filled with all sorts of good things. He is anticipating their coming wealth. And he tells them in verse 11 to take care. That's a way of saying, be careful. Or else when you experience the results of this abundance, you'll be tempted to forget God. The results of abundance are seen in verses 12 through 13. They will eat and be full. They will build good houses. Their herds and their flocks will multiply, which is a bit like saying your business will flourish, which means that their gold and their silver will multiply, which means that they will build wealth. If they are not careful to remember God, in verse 11, they will be at risk of becoming prideful, which we see in verse 14. They'll be at risk of forgetting about God. The same God who Moses then reminds them in verses 14 through 16, the same God that led them through the wilderness with serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground, the same God who provided for them, provided water out of a rock, who fed them with manna. And Moses kind of summarizes this argument then in verses 17 and 18. He says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. When it comes to stewardship, remembering God's ownership and God's provision is the first responsibility. That is why we use the word stewardship. According to Webster's Dictionary, stewardship is the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. Someone owns something, entrusts it to somebody else to steward it. Jesus employs this basic paradigm in several of his parables, in which he talks about the kingdom like a master who puts others in charge of the master's resources. In the mid-1980s, Alan and Catherine Barnhart were shaped by this same paradigm shift. They were a newly married couple. They were feeling called to head to the mission field. However, God had other plans for them. Alan's parents owned a small business, and they had decided they were going to retire early and get rid of the business. So Alan and Catherine had to decide what they were going to do. Were they going to take over this business, or were they going to go to the mission field? In the end, they decided to stay. But Alan knew that if he stayed, he wanted to steward these resources well. So he said he studied every passage he could find in the Bible about money, and there were two themes that continued to come up. The first is that God owns it all. And the second is that a lot of money can be dangerous. So based on those two themes, he and his brother, as they took over the business, they agreed on a few things. The first was that God owned the business. Another thing that Alan did is he set a financial finish line for himself, which meant that no matter how well the business did, he capped his consumption by capping his income. He wanted to sever the relationship between his consumption and his potential income. He wanted to guard against money becoming an idol. And what God did in their story over the next 30 years is truly remarkable. It is well worth your time to watch the 17-minute video testimonial on the website of a ministry called Generous Giving. When they took over the business in 1986, it made $1.5 million in revenue that year. About 30 years later, 
the business made $400 million in revenue. And because Alan and his brother did not take the profits for themselves, the business gave away half of their profits. And in the year that the video was made, they gave away $21 million. Because God owned everything, they did not cap their giving at 10%, they capped their spending at a livable wage. In some ways, the story of the barn hearts will feel completely unrelatable to us, because most of us in the room will not give away more than a million dollars in our lifetime let alone $21 million in a year. But in other ways, the principles they committed to when they took over the business are the same that we see in Deuteronomy. They're the same that we can apply to our lives. If God owns everything, then our stewardship of his money should reflect his values. And here's a very practical question that you can ask yourself. How is my use of God's money inconsistent with God's values? And how can I bring them into closer alignment? I thought about giving you even more practical application than that, but inevitably what we would do is take those rules, try to check the box, and feel like we've arrived. It will be more profitable for you over the course of your lifetime to continue to wrestle with that question. How is my use of God's money in alignment with God's values? And here's where the second responsibility of stewardship comes into view, and I'll summarize it with one word, intentional. Stewardship is the intentional use of God's resources. Israel was given a land of abundance, we see in verses 1 through 10, and through their intentional use of those resources, they could build houses, care for their flocks, multiply their gold, verses 12 through 13. The barn hearts were given a business by their parents, and God gave tremendous growth to their business. But it also required them to be intentional in the way that they grew that business and used the income that God provided. When Megan and I first got married, neither of us knew much about how to steward our resources well, and we made a lot of mistakes along the way. I remember in one of our more desperate seasons, we did some one-on-one coaching with someone from Crown Financial because we felt overwhelmed with just basic things like keeping a budget and paying our bills. The wise stewardship that I'm talking about kind of felt out of reach because we struggled simply to keep a positive balance in our checking account most months. But by God's grace, we've come a long way. We are not experts by any means, but God has provided, even through our foolishness and our ignorance. For many of you, you are not at risk of being prideful in your current use of money because you feel like you don't know how to use it well. And if that is you, then I want to encourage you to take the initiative to find help. Help is available. If you're going to align your use of God's money with God's values, then you'll need to learn the tools to help you. That will require intentionality. It is not something that we just drift toward. Megan is reading a book right now about community and relationships, and the author uses this analogy of a current in the ocean, which will make us drift down the shoreline. He argues that we do not naturally drift toward relationships, but toward isolation. And so if we want relationships, we need to be intentional. The same basic principle applies to our use of money. We do not drift toward wise stewardship of money, so we need to be intentional. And this is true for all income brackets. A a spending plan is required whether you make a lot of money or a little. If God owns it all and he has entrusted some of it to us to steward, then we need to be intentional in how we steward that money well. So our use of God's money aligns with God's values. 
But let's not forget here that in our passage, this is more of a warning than it even is a set of instructions. And so we need to talk about the second aspect of stewardship, the dangers of stewardship. The primary warning from Moses here in our passage is about our tendency to deny God in the midst of abundance. This is what he says in verse 14. Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Israel is a people here. They are desperate and in need, we see in Exodus. They were under oppression from Egypt. They cried out to God to save them. He heard their request. He frees them. He brings them through the wilderness into a land of abundance. And the very thing that Moses warns against here in Deuteronomy 8, if you read the rest of the story, it becomes reality in future generations. They forget about their God. The phrase, then your heart be lifted up, is a phrase that means pride. To lift up your heart meant to think much of yourself, to elevate yourself in your own mind, often at the expense of remembering God. And how often does this happen in the midst of God's provision for us? This pattern is common to us as well. We give ourselves credit for what God has done. What a foolish pattern we keep as humans. And it looks like this. The first step is that we feel the depth of our need. So second, we cry out to God. And third, he shows up in amazing ways. He meets our needs, often in ways we did not expect. He provides for us. And then fourth, in response, we so quickly forget him. One of the ways that we see this is what I will call the no-debt gospel. And here's what I mean by that. Debt is a very real problem for Americans. The national average for credit card debt last December was $7,000. The average student loan balance is over $40,000. Not to mention the debt that is, is, consu- or is, is taken on for homes and vehicles. An upside-down debt-to-income ratio has a very negative impact on our ability to steward God's money well. And so as a result, entire organizations and ministries have been created to help people get out of debt and manage their money. And this is a very good thing. But here is where we find ourselves following the pattern of Israel in Deuteronomy 8. Before someone gets serious about paying off debt, there is usually a crisis moment, that first step. In desperation, they ask for God's help as they commit to paying off their debt. At some point, They start to make progress. They see the fruit of their labors. Debt is melting away, and they're getting close to the finish line. And when we are living in good houses, paying off school loans, when our careers have prospered, and we have multiplied our silver and our gold, then we are at risk of the same thing in verse 14. Our hearts are lifted up, and we forget the Lord, the one who provided the jobs, the one who provided the community to hold us accountable, provided the resources to help us learn how to pay off the debt. And soon, we have built our identity not on God and his goodness, but on our net worth and our ability to pay down debt. The danger of stewardship is that wisdom with our money often leads to abundance and wealth, and in abundance, we are at risk of denying our God. Wealth is not evil in and of itself. Paying off debt is a good thing that we should pursue, but wealth can be a temptation Jesus says money wants to be our master, and you can forget God through debt-free living, the debt-free gospel, just as much as you can the full-of-debt gospel. Some of you need to hear the warning of Deuteronomy, that in your abundance, 
your wealth, and your financial wisdom, you do not forget God. Others of you need the warning that God provides through Proverbs 21:17, where it says, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. The idea then gets repeated just three verses later in verse 20. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. And here's what God is saying. A lack of discipline when it comes to our consumption is foolish and lacks wisdom. Now, we don't want to be overly simplistic about it. It doesn't necessarily mean that your poverty is the result of foolishness or sin any more than good financial decisions will always lead to prosperity. But it is meant to tell us how God designed the world to work. Diligence and wisdom will require intentionality when it comes to our money. In our land of abundance, there is a never-ending opportunity to spend money. Beyond our need to pay for our taxes, save for retirement, give generously, buy food, pay for somewhere to live, find transportation, and purchase clothes, there is education, household items like soap and paper towels, getting your hair cut, paying for fuel, and so on. The list gets overwhelming. Most of us struggle to just pay for basic needs, but then we quickly add into it entertainment and games and adventures, toys, electronics, streaming services, and more. I quoted Parkinson last week, where he says, a luxury once enjoyed becomes a necessity. What we know is that our culture is obsessed with consumption, and we quickly move luxuries into the category of necessity. Our economy is built upon American consumption, which means that the culture or the current of our culture does not make us drift toward the intentional use of God's money, but the impulsive consumption of all that is available. So let me encourage you even to rethink the way that you view a budget. Rather than thinking of it as an oppressive mechanism of control, which admittedly it can feel that way sometimes if you try to use one, think of setting and managing a budget as an intentional step in aligning the way that you spend God's money with God's values. The dangers of stewardship here are on both sides. We are at risk of forgetting God in our wise use of money just as much as we are in our foolish use of money. And so we need a way forward. Which brings us to the third aspect of stewardship, the redemption of stewardship. Let's look at what God says the outcome of our stewardship will be. In verse 18, Moses said that if we remember or if they remember their God, the one who gives them power to get wealth, that will be a confirmation of the covenant that he swore with their fathers. And that is a reference to the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis. This is not meant to be a proof text for the prosperity gospel. This was given to God's people in a specific time and place. God had promised that he would give them offspring, land, and wealth, and that through their family, they were meant to be a conduit of blessing to the nations. The only requirement for Abraham was to worship God and only God. God is reaffirming the covenant in verse 18 through Moses. But the warning continues in verse 19. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. This is the other side of the covenant. If we forget God and worship other gods, then we will receive the consequence of our rebellion. 
And if you know the rest of the story of the Old Testament, they failed to keep the covenant. They chased after other gods until they ended up in exile, removed from the land of abundance. And here's what I want you to see. The core problem behind the good use of money is the same problem behind our foolish use of money. Either we forget about God in our abundance or in our consumption. Last week, I handed out a worksheet to all of you to help you unearth what idol is behind your idol of money. If you didn't get one last week, let me know afterward. I can hand them out to you today. There were four categories, status, security, entertainment, and control. Behind the good use of money and the building of wealth is often the idol of security or control. Behind the foolish use of money and spending it on whatever pleasures we want is often the idol of status or entertainment. Some of you walked in today, and when you heard that we were going to be doing a sermon on stewardship, you lifted your heart to heaven when pride, because you think you're pretty good at the way you use your money. Others of you came in here feeling guilty. You feel ashamed, because you know that you can be foolish with your money. And here's what you need to hear today. Beneath your tendency to spend your money on impulse or save your money in pride, there is an idol that is lurking. Like the Israelites, we are prone to abandon our God for idols, and money is a choice tool of our enemy to turn our hearts away from the Lord. The consequence that Moses warned against was that if they worshiped other gods through their use of money, they would perish. God's people failed to keep this covenant. Down through the generations, they neglected the covenant over and over again. And so we are left asking, what do we do about this problem? Last week, I told you the story about the rich young man who came to Jesus looking for eternal life. The answer Jesus gave is that he needed to give up his love of money and worship Jesus. In sorrow, the rich young man walked away from Jesus and chose his money instead. The young man was denied admittance into the kingdom. Israel was removed from the promised land. All of them experienced exile because they worshiped something other than God. Often, it was money. God had made a covenant with Israel, and they could not hold up their end of the covenant until God decided that he would not only fulfill his end of the covenant, but theirs as well. The consequence is that they would perish in verse 19. And it was not until the perfect sacrifice came and perished on our behalf that the covenant would be fulfilled. God looked into the reality of humanity, knowing that we would choose other gods over and over again. Jesus perished that we might live. He was exiled that we could be welcomed home. He was betrayed at the cost of 30 pieces of silver so that we could be united to God through a new covenant. And through it all, He frees us from the burden of money's tyranny. Jesus did not die, or Jesus did not only die because of our love of money, but he also rose to new life and secured victory over its power. In the resurrection, Jesus has been seated in the heavenly realm. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, he declares victory over all the powers and the principalities in the heavenly realm, including the God of money, known as mammon. Jesus says to money, no, you cannot have dominion over my people. I am their God. They are no longer yours to rule. 
And through faith in Christ, we are also seated with him in the heavenly realm as we just studied in Ephesians over the last several months. Jesus has given us his spirit, so money cannot have complete power over us. If you are in Christ, you can say to money, I worship Jesus. You do not have hold on my heart any longer. And Jesus gives you the power to confront this idol so that in your spending and your saving, you can live under the values of God's kingdom. By the power of God's spirit, you can steward money in a way that intentionally aligns your use of God's money with God's values. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.